Thank you so much. Good morning. Well, we've been involved, haven't we, in the book of James, and we're in the fifth chapter, and as we're inching towards the conclusion of this book, we're going to pause today and examine one verse. One verse found in the book of James that I think has tremendous bearing upon our lives. Normally, I try to work paragraph by paragraph through a book of the Bible. Well, this verse is the sum total of one paragraph, and so we'll do it that way as God has presented it to us. And in James chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, you and I are introduced to something that has just tremendous relevance to the way in which we face life on a daily basis. Where in the fifth chapter, verse 12, you and I are told these words, But above all, my brothers... Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is a remarkable verse and it has implications for what's happening not only in our personal lives, but what is happening internationally and globally. So we want to pull all this together now and place it under one verse and allow God to be able to speak to our hearts and allow for us in turn to be able to share it with others in a way that ministers to their hearts as we look to our Lord in prayer. Our fathers, we come before you. We realize we're dealing with the essence of truthfulness. And we're considering how this relates to the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And how all of life gains a sense of connectedness and coherence when we allow for truth to have its priority over our lives. So guide us, Father, in that regard. And help us to see how this matter of truth has such important significance for not only our now, but our forever. So, Father, in these minutes together, warm these hearts and engage these minds and shape these wills. Come here to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you prepared to take the oath, Senator? Justice Roberts asked. It was January 20th of 2009 when the Senator responded, I am. And with millions gathered together in Washington, D.C., and millions more listening in or watching worldwide, Justice Roberts then began to issue the oath of office. The one who was to be president was simply to respond. As Justice Roberts began, quote, I, Barack Hussein Obama, do solemnly swear. 
But halfway through the line, Mr. Obama interrupted him and began repeating the line. So Justice Roberts then paused. And then Obama repeated the entire first line. And then Justice Roberts quoted the next line of the oath, but incorrectly. See, he was supposed to say, quote, that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States, unquote. But instead, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts said, quote, that I will execute the office of the United States faithfully, flipping words around. Mr. Obama then paused and then repeated the oath as Justice Roberts had incorrectly stated it, with the word faithfully out of place. When all was said and done, not all was said and done. Because then lawyers in the White House convened as the ceremonies began to take place throughout the rest of that day, concerned that the oath had not been issued properly or recited properly. And so the next day, in the map room, Mr. Obama and Justice Roberts reconvened. And Justice Roberts once again donned his black robe and Mr. Obama restated the oath, this time we're told, without a hitch. How does that relate to this verse we're looking at? We're dealing here with the matter of words, truth, and oaths. And when you and I begin to track throughout the book of James, what we find increasingly an intensifying way is that words matter. And furthermore, truth matters. And truth is to shape the words that we communicate to one another. Now, throughout James' writings, he's been greatly burdened with the idea of the usage of words. You might remember that in James chapter 1, verse 19, he had said, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. In James chapter 3, verse 1, he would say, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And then he went on to say, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man also able to bridle his whole body. So what we want to do now is to match what we say with what God's word says and draw out here in this one verse four significant factors that relate to speaking truthfully in a world of increasing levels of deceit. And the first is found like this, number one, that regarding God's command for truthfulness, I want you to note with me first the priority that we must maintain. And we see that in this opening fragment, but above all, my brothers, do not swear. Now notice very carefully with me that he uses the phrase, but above all. This means then that you and I are to establish truth as a priority in the way in which we go about living and the way in which we go about communicating because we are challenged by what took place in the Garden of Eden, which we'll get to in just a minute. But notice here that what he has done when he prioritizes with the but above all 
is telling you and telling me that truth matters. And that truth is to be the priority in the way in which we relate to one another. Because, and this is critically important, when truth breaks down, trust breaks down. When someone within a relationship maritally, when someone in a relationship corporately, when someone as a citizen nationally begins to substitute deception for truth, as the truth breaks down, eventually the trust breaks down. And what we have here, instead of integrity, where truth is integrated, think mathematically, the integer, the wholeness of the number, where it is not integrated, then we disintegrate. And so we begin to break down internally, and we look at ourselves in the mirror each and every morning, and we are pondering how, as there's this disintegration from the inside out, there's a breakdown psychologically that leads to break relationally that can lead to breakdowns nationally and on and on it goes because we live in a disintegrating culture that fails to truth where truth is to be integrated into each and every aspect of our lives and so now James wants to address that head on as he leads towards the conclusion of his writings and he's saying this is a but above all matter. And if you do not allow for truth to be part and parcel with the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, and three days later God the Father validates that by raising Jesus Christ, you see, from the dead, if that is the case, then we've got to understand the connectedness between truth and trust. And we trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways, we acknowledge him. He makes our paths straight, you see. But the truth is based upon the trust. And the resurrection validates the truth. Therefore, the trust. But that's not all. Notice that he goes on to say here at this point, my brothers. In other words, he is saying that believers now are to be the models, the demonstrators, the examples of how truth gets worked out, practically speaking, in what we say, how we live, how we relate to one another, my brothers. For example, in James chapter 1, verse 2, he would say, Count it all joy, my brothers. God speaks truth, and God speaks truth into the trials. And so when the trials challenge you and me to begin to question the truth, I've got to go back to the fact that God has said we are going to go through trials. Therefore, I can say, yeah, in the midst of this trial, that means that God was speaking to me truthfully. He didn't exempt me because I'm a believer. And so I have to allow this trial then to be a means to further understand the truth that God has for me in the midst of this trial. My brothers. I get then to James chapter 1 verse 19 and he says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And now I've got one quick and two slows and I don't want to reverse the process. Otherwise... 
the truth breaks down verbally, and then the trust breaks down relationally. And so now you and I, we look very carefully at the coherence of the relationships that we have, the connectedness of parent with child. Has there been a sense of deception? Has there been a sense of dishonesty that begins to rupture, tear at the very core you see of trust? And ask yourself, where's the truth or the lack of truth behind the tearing? Because typically, deception weaves itself into elements of truth so that it appears as though it's true, but in reality, it's not. And so he talks to the believer at this point. Make absolutely certain that truth is being authenticated in the way in which we speak and in the way in which we live. And then he adds this particular word, which is interesting to you and to me. Do not swear. He's not talking about foul language. As we pointed out in our insert this morning, the command, do not swear in verse 12, pertains to the taking of oaths. It's got to be connected to the code of ethics in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12, and Matthew 5, verse 13, 33 through 37. Now, when James wrote this letter, the religious teachers and leaders of that day, they were known as scribes, as Pharisees. Well, they had developed a false tradition of oath-taking. Jesus, and now James, had to refute that. So I give you the example in the insert, don't we? Have here. For example, one rabbi who was trying to find ways to create loopholes so that when it was convenient to tell a lie, so that you could appear as though you are living the truth, one rabbi taught that if you swear by Jerusalem, you're not required to keep your vow. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, then you are required to keep your vow. And people had to be absolutely certain now as they were following the additions to Scripture, whether or not they were telling the truth or not telling the truth, or if they had a loophole in the way in which they were to go about living this whole matter of truth. Satan looks for ways to create Lupos. It was the Genesis account. And in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord God, listen to the phrasing, the coupling of those two. Lord God took the man, put him in the garden, feed him to work it, keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Listen carefully to how it's phrased. You may surely get the sense of the absoluteness there. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. See the tremendous liberty that's there for the believer? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he saves the negative for the last. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall, here's the second surely, surely die. Now, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, we're told that the serpent was more crafty. There was this appearance, you see, of attractiveness and alertness about him. Deception comes across that way, very appearance-oriented. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the, notice the coupling, Lord God had made. He does not go to the man who heard this directly. He goes to the woman and poses the first question of history. 
did God actually say? What's missing? Lord God. He's removing the sense of lordship now in the question as he begins to draw her into the realm of deception. Did God, not Lord God, actually, as if now she's got to question the absoluteness of it all, say, you shall not eat. Notice now, while God gave tremendous liberty and started with a positive, he now expands the prohibition and starts with a negative. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God began, you shall eat. And here now is the evil one saying, you shall not eat. But he doesn't come on like an atheist. He doesn't say, I'm a secularist. Rather, he involves himself in a religious conversation. Most of the religious matters in this world deal with the challenges of deception in relationship to truth. So now he takes enough of the truth to float a religious question, but to lure her away from the authenticity of the Lord God. He starts with the negative, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now she's on the defensive, isn't she? And the woman said to the serpent in chapter 3, verse 2, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, What's lacking? She did not say, The Lord God said. She's already getting a sense of a diminished view of God. God said, She's now reacting religiously and yet deceptively to this matter, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. But then she adds, neither shall you touch it. Did the Lord God say that? No. Lest you die. In other words, now she's getting this added sense that God is some cosmic sadist who is such a prohibitionist that I can't maneuver in life because he is negating each and every turn I make. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And now he's tackling the absolute with the word not surely. For God knows, in other words, God will feel threatened by you that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And he wants her to be able to know good and evil experientially rather than objectively as God, the Lord God, would have it. And now you and I see how even this realm of deception can make its way into religious conversations personally and globally. So what we need at this point is Charlie Brown and Lucy to help us with a kickoff. Why this happens every September, I don't know. But on the first day of the new season, there's Lucy, and she's going to be Charlie Brown's holder. You're picturing now a three-point field goal. I'll hold the ball, Charlie Brown, and you come running up and kick it. 
He's been burned by her. She lacks credibility. I'm insulted, he said, that you think I'm so stupid. Charlie Brown, it's the symbolism. It's the ball. It's your inner desire. It's the triumph. It's all there for you. Charlie Brown is saying the ball, the triumph, the symbolism. She may be right. He begins to run. The ball, the desire, I can see it now. And then right when he gets to that point, once again, as she does on a yearly basis, she lifts the ball up into the air. He swings his foot into the air, lands on his behind. And then, no, you missed the symbolism in all of this, Charlie Brown, she says to him. And he says in response, how about the reality of truth? In response. And so we watch as a treaty is being established between a nation, the United States, and Iran. And we try to understand what's real and what's not, what's true, what's not. And are we dealing with true reality, real truth at this point, or are we not? And how do you begin to possibly understand all of this and the way in which it relates, you see, to modern day life? And what you and I have to do is to bring a but-above-all approach back into the midst of all this. My brothers the family of faith, back into the midst of this. And then we look at that statement with regard to the do not swear, and we need a little help in understanding because we see oaths taking place, such as a Justice Roberts with a then-Senator Obama. And how do we apply that then to the way in which we go about living our lives? We've got to connect the dots here. If the first aspect is dealing with the priority that we must maintain with the phrase, but above all, my brothers, do not swear, we now have to connect it to this second aspect regarding the restriction that we must accept. And here's the restriction that comes out before you and me, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. So now, begin to pull it together. Regarding God's command for truthfulness, you note the priority we must maintain, and we note now the restriction that we must accept, and you read a little further and more intently into what's here, and you notice how he begins to develop this. And he's saying, watch out for substitutes. There are going to be substitutes in life. Instead of God, you might get something close to God either by heaven instead of the Lord God himself, or by earth instead of the Lord God himself, or by any other oath instead of how God himself would be viewed as authority. And now as you begin to combine each and every aspect in this one singular verse, you understand with me that there is a relationship between authority and integrity. Then when we find a substitute for the Lord God having authorization over our lives. The result is we assume authority over our lives, authority over our words, and then we can determine when it's convenient to tell the truth and when it is inconvenient to tell the truth. And when we begin to think that way, we have created a substitute for the one who said, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. And no one you see, no one comes to the Father, but through me. How do you handle that? Dr. Al Mohler wrestles with it. In this world you will have trouble, he wrote. Welcome to Rowan County. Where on September 3rd, looking back upon what is now a past tense, U.S. District Judge David Bunning ordered Kim Davis, county clerk of Rowan County, to go to jail for refusing to obey an order in his court requiring requiring Mrs. Davis to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Mrs. Davis, just in the past few years, four years or so, had come to saving faith in Christ and all of a sudden began to wrestle with the whole issue of, but who has authority? That is the issue in our culture now. In court, Judge Bunning had said to Ms. Davis that the court cannot condone the willful disobedience of its lawfully issued order. And he continued by arguing that if you give people the opportunity to choose which orders they follow, that's what potentially causes problems. And Daniel, the Old Testament, seemed to be a threat to that empire. And in fact, was beginning to cause significant problems because he saw the authority above the authority. It was trying to maintain a sense of integrity in his relationship to the sovereign God himself. And so what we find here in Dr. Moeller's writings is that now far larger than would have been imagined points to some of the hardest questions we now in America by Christians who are determined to be faithful to Christ and to fulfill their responsibilities as citizens. Many of these questions defy a simplistic answer. How are Christians to hold elective office, to fulfill that office, when the nation's highest court or those holding higher office rule and legislate contrary to Christian conviction? The same question is quickly extended to those serving in the military, holding a point of office, even merely working for the government. And further, though the most pressing challenges in this case are centered in a political office, The same pressures and demands for moral coercion are found in higher education, in the world of business, even among the Boy Scouts. There is virtually no Christian who will not face these questions at some point, in some way, this matter of authority. He goes on. He writes. And then he draws us to Martin Luther, who testified before the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, as he was on trial for his life, quote, My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant for anything to go against conscience that is neither right nor safe. God help me. And Jesus wrote and said in his disciples, as John wrote it, In this world, you will have trouble. What happens at this point is that when we substitute for the highest authority, what we do then is begin to substitute for true integrity. And where truth breaks down, trust breaks down, 
And once while we could see a sense of integrity as it relates to the integration of the nation as well as the individual, now we see disintegration because now everything is disconnected from truth. And so a family experiences this in the home nationwide. Government experiences it as well. And what we need to do who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is start with first things, but above all, and then look at one another and say with my brother's approach, this is for the family of faith in particular. Do not swear. And now once we've reestablished the authority basis of truth, we go on then and deal with this second aspect the restriction, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, and make absolutely certain we are not substituting our preferences for God's will, our opinions for God's word, our idols for God's authentic, sovereign place, you see, over our lives. Now, once we have reached that point, then we get to this third aspect. We're still in verse 12. The thirdly, regarding God's command for truthfulness. Note with me the conciseness we must value. Because James then wrote, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no. He's not allowing us to say, but my no means yes, and my yes means no. How do we deal with this? begin to think very carefully about the way in which we utilize the word yes. For some, there is the redefined yes, where today I say yes, but down the road, when I find myself communicating a sense of no, I then turn to somebody and say, well, what I really meant when I said yes was, and now there's a redefinition of the yes. And this is happening in the courts. This is happening in the families. This happens in parenting. And then there's the time-bound yes. Where the person said, well, I was so young then. And yeah, I said yes then. But in reality, look at my circumstances today. Is there any reason why I shouldn't be saying no? And then there is the conditional yes, which is unstated. Where the person says yes But within the heart of hearts, the person is saying, but only if he does, or she does, or he says, or we set the ifs in order to protect us in case our yes becomes too difficult to live out. But there's the no's. And you begin to think about this and the wear of the external pressures on a person regarding the oaths and the vows and the truth that we communicate in life. And you consider the continual temptations we face day in, day out, when people who are to be people of the yes and people of the no face that there's an erosion that slowly, shapely goes against the grain. And then there's the professional hindrance where you said, yes, I want to do that, but you want to be able to say no at the same time for professional advancement in the workplace. And in integrity begs you and begs me to be able to live in a way that honors God. No God but God. Os Guinness wrote, It is truth that gives relevance to relevance. Just as relevance becomes irrelevant, 
if it is not related to truth, which is what churches nationwide need to understand. It was before World War II. Nora Wayne wrote a book exposing Hitler and his Nazi plot. The manuscript, reaching for the stars, was intercepted in the German mail on its way to an American publisher. She fled to London, rewrote the book from memory, and get this, sent copies to Himmler, the Nazi hangman. He took vengeance by imprisoning seven of her anti-Nazi friends and relatives. Miss Wayne came back to Germany in 1939, offered her life for the freedom of her friends. Himmler offered to empty a whole prison if she would write the book to make Hitler appear good. And she said, no. No. I am willing to forfeit my life, but not the truth. Here is a woman who had truth integrated while we looked at a nation that disintegrated. That is happening globally. That happens individually. And so now what you find are legislators who are looking at a treaty between the United States and Iran. And you know that truth and trust go hand in hand. And you have just heard in the past days that the Ayatollah of Iran has proclaimed that Israel will no longer be in existence 25 years from now, though it seems to me he has failed to look into the scriptures. But there is the promise. And the promise of Jesus stands out to me very loud and very clear. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. And so I look at that 8th century B.C. promise of this one, this Messiah who's to be born in Bethlehem. And then people arrive on the scene, and there he is born in Bethlehem. And God is saying, yes. And there's this one 8th centuries prior who is described as one being born of a virgin. And then the Matthew account allows for us to be able to understand two natures in one person, 100% God, 100% man, so that he will be the perfect sacrifice in our place for our sins. And now we say, yes. Because the promises come to fruition. And they find their fulfillment in the one that we know is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you look at that, and you ponder that. And if a Nora one can stand up, so can the believer today. Which leads us then to this fourth aspect. That regarding God's command for truthfulness, note with me the warning that we must heed. Because at the very end of it, he says this, so that you may not fall under condemnation. 
So you look at that very carefully and you begin to ponder the significance of what does this mean and what kind of motivation does this have for the believer today where the Mosaic law had warned you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And so what you and I find here is that there's a sober warning that he gives to you and to me because as we would note readily in John chapter 8 and verse 44, that the evil one is known as the father of lies. And we see the initial kickoff in the Garden of Eden. You pull all that together, then a priority to keep, a restriction to accept, a conciseness that we've got to value, a warning we must heed, all of this found in one verse. And if you find that your life is disintegrating, Ask yourself, what is the reason behind the disintegration? Reintroduce truth into all aspects of your life, individually and relationally, because once truth is reestablished, trust is reestablished. And when it's 12 noon kickoff, and the Packers are playing the Bears, and you're beginning to wonder how this is going to turn out, just bear in mind, There was a lady who made a promise, lifted the ball, and Charlie Brown fell. And my concern nationwide, as well as personally for each and every one of us, is that when that ball gets lifted up in the air, people fall. Life comes apart. And we need to reintroduce trust individually and into our relationships. Because where truth is reestablished, trust is reestablished. And once again, we become integrated as one whole under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. And Father, we see the awesome reality of the truth regarding Jesus and how that truth was validated when God the Father raised God the Son from the dead. And so if there's anything in our lives right now we're looking at, and we're saying there was a time where everything seemed so connected, there was wholeness, but now I'm looking at my life, my relationships, my work, my future, and it seems to be nothing but brokenness. Where once there was integration, now there is disintegration. I pray now that we will repent of sin, get right with the one who is the truth, allow for truth to make its way in to restore trust, so that again we can be fully integrated under your lordship and for your glory. And for this we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.